Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. So welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. Good afternoon, Chris. How's it going today? It's going well. How's things? Things are the same. Uh, I have not taken photos of the new command center yet. Uh, I, I do plan on it. I'm still getting it set up. There's a bunch of Ikea boxes and crap around here. So uh, I'm going to wait till that's at least cleaned up uh, before I do that. Um, today's episode is kind of a, a string of news articles plus some things that we didn't cover last time. So we're changing the format uh, a little bit. We're going to start off with uh, a few news articles. Uh, we're not doing an EdTech office hours today. We had no uh, questions from people, but if you do have questions um, for your EdTech office hours, so if you have uh, technical questions that you'd like us to answer, you can send us an email at hey at edtechexamined.com or you can uh, send us a DM on Twitter at EdTech examined and we will uh, if it's an IT computer related question um, we're always happy to do our best to answer it or we'll look into the answer if we don't know uh, offhand but we're going to skip that section today and we have a few news articles and then uh, a couple of discussion items and then we're going to talk a little bit as our tip um, some tips about uh, you know uh, protecting your privacy. If you want to, you know, de Google a little bit, there goes that Google sponsor, but that's okay. Uh, some alternatives to Gmail. I think we've covered this before, but we have a little bit of an update and there's an article that we can, uh, provide for that. So let's get into our news for the week, which is quite a bit actually. So <clears throat> there's an article from Forbes it's published in J uh, July 20th. Uh, and it's called Meet the Company That's Pro uh, Proving Two Big EdTech Trends. So it was written by Derek Newton. And the article talks about how the pandemic, so the COVID-19 pandemic, for those who may have been living in a cave for the last 15 months, if you're not aware of what's been going on, uh, that the, the article makes the, the case that the changes in education were probably already happening, um, but were just accelerated by the pandemic. So one of the things that this article talks about uh, is the use of video, and in particularly the company Screencast-O-Matic. So I actually used Screencast-O-Matic when I worked at the University of Alberta. I'm sure it's much improved now. It is a uh, cross-platform super easy to use uh, screencasting and video creation tool. Uh, the, the people who created it are out of Seattle. And one of the things this article talks about is how people got so used to developing video for the pandemic that while there was a huge spike in usage of video applications and programs, um, and there's been a bit of a drop off because people had to learn how to do video and they've now acquired that skill uh, there's more educators who are interested in, in creating video for their classes and therefore more demand for video products. So one of the interesting things that they discuss with Screencast-O-Matic 
uh, as a company, this is a private company, is how easy they made it for educators, uh, higher education, but also K to 12. So it's a fairly inexpensive application. Chris, do you remember how much it costs? I mean, according to the article, it talks about uh, being just $20 a year, which, you know, that's, uh, it, I think one good thing uh, is just the fact that it becomes like a no brainer mm -hmm. and uh, especially trying to go and get reimbursed. That's a huge obstacle. So, you know, 20 bucks, I think anybody can kind of afford. So uh, yeah. that's, uh, that's one aspect that, and, you know, again, I, I think the other big aspect uh with this company is that they're actually tailor uh, tailoring this towards the educators right and keeping that in mind making it easy to use making it inexpensive so mm -hmm. and then, uh, I guess the other big thing from a trend standpoint that they talked about is uh, not only did it accelerate the adoption but I mean they have seen a bit of a drop-off in terms of uh, the uh, revenue that they've been receiving in terms of users uh, but it's still much higher than pre-pandemic times. Yeah, and likely to stay like that, uh, just because people have a, a baseline skill set for developing video now, right? So one of the th so this article is interesting because it says um, the ease of use factor in education technology can't be and should not be overlooked. This is where the Omatic and Champagne screencast stands out. That's still our core value. It's easy to use champagne, so he's one of the uh, developers of the product. It says the product requires no fancy software licenses, no IT permissions, no specific cameras. Users just go to the site, click a button, install the app, record, and share. We don't even request an email. You just start using it. So, and, and it also integrates, of course, with all the learning management systems like Moodle, Blackboard, Canvas, Chromebook, browser integration for $20 a year. And I don't know if that's a an individual or there's an educator's uh, special uh, license, but it's a, it is a really easy to use video creation tool. So in a way, this is kind of like ties into what we would normally have for ed tech office hours. It is a really good way. If you just want to record your screen and get started, um, develop a really short video, develop GIFs, you know, automatically back up to some sort of cloud storage like Dropbox, you can connect that. It is really easy to use. And I think it's interesting to think about new baseline skills that educators have had to develop uh, as a result of the pandemic, right? So this idea that video creation was kind of uh, a little bit out of reach for some people. Uh, they had to use it, and maybe they weren't using the ideal tool. They were using something more complex. Uh, but now that they have those skills, uh, you know, maybe they're more interested or open uh, to the idea of continuing to use those skills, even if it's not, uh, you know, using the tool that they had to work with something even easier would be better. So, um, interesting article, uh, about screencast-o-matic. It's kind of interesting to see it, uh, in the limelight because it's been around for such a long time, but I feel like it's been kind of, a almost disregarded. Yeah, I mentioned, I believe 2006, I, I thought another interesting note was, um, 
uh, how, again, given the price point, even for students, that uh, there could be uh, some uptake. And especially uh, they've now added some more features. So they've added a green screen, for example, where students can go and do a mock interview and remote reporting. So again, that helps them in terms of uh, growing the educational foothold some more for the company. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, if folks are interested in checking out Screencast-O-Matic, which I do recommend, it is really easy to do video editing cross-platform. We like cross-platform tools here. It's screencast-o-matic.com. Uh, and they have uh, a bunch of plans. They, they also have a free tier if you want to yeah. try it. So, I mean, there's, there's no uh, obligation, but I mean, at that price, uh, I didn't even know it was that inexpensive. I mean, maybe, maybe that's something I would consider, uh, if it's easy to use though, I can use, uh, Adobe premiere. It's probably a little bit more powerful after all the years of video. <laughs> It'd be interesting to try a lot of these easier to use tools, especially with AI and machine learning, if they have algorithms working in the background, do some really good work, um, to, you know, uh, change the color, uh, you know, light capture. So it's not overexposed and do stuff. I mean, I've been pretty amazed about some of the, how well some of the easier tools work. It's not necessary, um, to use a more advanced tool, even something like iMovie, which is fairly easy to use. It's far more advanced, but it probably doesn't have, it's probably not as automated. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, it's funny because even sometimes, uh, like if I need to go and make something quick, like instead of using the Adobe Creative Suite, uh, sometimes just go and use PowerPoint and then you can export it and it's that much easier and faster, right? It might not be to the same quality, but if you need to get something quick and easy, uh, you know, there's some other tools that you already have in your repertoire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Our second article is from Inside Higher Ed, the uh, probably the biggest uh, higher ed blog, if you haven't gone to it before. And the article is titled Six Ways to Make Higher Education More Developmental. And uh, this is written by Steve Mintz. I don't know Steve's background, actually. I didn't look it up. Oh, he's a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin. So uh, he's a guy who probably has some experience with, with higher education. One of the things that's interesting about this article, so he, he discusses six ways to, to make higher education more developmental, as the title said. Uh, and he talks about some of the hesitancy to do this. So uh, he starts off the article by saying, when applied to education, the word developmental carries profoundly negative undertones. It's a uh, synonym for a remedi remediation and implies that a particular student is unprepared, deficit-riven, and at risk. So, like, there's something wrong in development that needs to be corrected. And um, he quotes a study, a 1969 study of college uh, students' psychosocial maturation, which I highly recommend, uh, education and identity. And that was written by Arthur Chickering. And there was a later, I don't know if it was just Chickering, uh, a later article was written by Chickering and Gamison that kind of summarized uh, the, the developmental process that students go through through their higher education uh, career. 
And uh, Chickering unfortunately died last year, but he identified seven vectors of development. So he talked about developing competence, um, purpose, integrity, uh, and mature uh, interpersonal relationships, uh, forging an adult identity, managing emotions, and moving from autonomy toward interdependence. Also remember uh, Chickering and Gamison talking in a different article, talking a little bit about um, how students accept content, novel content, uh, as they go through university. It's quite different depending if you're a first year to a fourth year. So like a, um, a, you know, a, a new student kind of sees the, wow, this is a huge generalization, but their research, as I understood it, kind of demonstrated that newer students into higher education kind of saw the world as facts. This is right. This is wrong kind of a thing. Uh, and then they start to uh, learn about these gray zone topics, which we're all used to in, in the real world. And then it becomes very difficult to accept that because it complicates your uh, blueprint your image of the world no longer matches your expectations so then they go through a phase where nothing is true son of a semi-nihilistic phase and then over time the developmental cycle comes around to people being able to accept that there are gray zones in the world and there's not always solutions sometimes there's just trade-offs but that takes a long time for people to accept uh, I'm sure that there's research to suggest that some people are more likely to accept it than others but it's interesting and it's something that I've always tried to keep in mind uh, when I'm teaching, I don't assume where people are at. Again, these are generalizations. I've met uh, first-year students who are probably closer to fourth-year development. But regardless, in this article by Steve Mintz in Inside Higher Ed, he talks about these six ways to make higher education more developmental. So maybe, Chris, did you want to start off on the list and and we can just kind of go through these one by one. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I mean, the thought it was interesting. Like the first one talks about uh, just having the students' first year dedicated towards developmental issues. So instead of just having a uh, you know college or university one on one course, embedding the topics in the the curriculum for all the the first year of their academic experience. Yeah. And this is something you and I have talked about. One of the things I've always been interested in is not just um, teaching people content, but throughout the curriculum embedding, uh, like he says, the study skills, training skills, reflection skills uh, into every single course, which I think uh, we all have to learn the hard way, so to speak. But was there a better way to kind of teach that? Yeah. Um, the second one he says, as we treat writing, public speaking, and numeracy as elements in a developmental process. So this is interesting. He says, uh, one and done requirements transmit a powerful message that writing, math, and oral presentation skills are, for more, most students, simply box-checking exercises. The alternative is to implant such skills in a far broader range of classes. So yeah, it, it makes sense because if it, I, I, I remember from, uh, from university, I really enjoyed writing papers and doing presentations and that's not something that you see as much, uh, in the sciences, maybe the presentation aspect, but not the, not the long papers that's more in the arts classes, or at least it used to be. And, uh, one of the things that was interesting is that people who really didn't like that work 
speaking and writing, which I'd argue are very important skills, tended to gravitate towards classes that didn't require them. And then when they came across assignments like that, they treated them as uh, the author says, as a checkbox just to complete, not as a, a um, appreciable life skill uh, and employability skill, to be perfectly honest. Um, that is something that has to be addressed in every single class. I, it, you have to make it difficult to avoid. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're right. Like with, it comes down to the various disciplines. I mean, I, I find in the, the business faculty, most courses, and I can't speak for all of them, but many of the ones that I've come across, they usually have some written report. There'll be a public speaking that has to take place. So, uh, you know, it, it does make sense to just have those skills uh, right across a broad range of classes. Well, and I think it's something that uh, academics have, have talked about, the importance of um, skills that universities are supposed to provide, yet we don't talk about how they're also related to employability, right? And we'll, we'll get along uh, in this in a bit. Uh, he talks about that. You actually, maybe we will combine this with the third aspect. Do you want to highlight that for us? Yeah, sure. So uh, he talks about uh, integrating career development across the curriculum. And, uh, you know, again, I, I think this is where uh, when you provide those opportunities to acquire those marketable skills that employers are looking for, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, trying to get it through internships or research experiences or project based learning. But, you know, uh, there could be uh, a way to maybe offer some type of certificate he mentioned as one strategy. Uh, in terms of preparing for their classes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some some sort of career development certificate or at the very minimum, my thought, and this was some time ago, uh, the requirement of a reflection. Uh, you know, reflections kind of get a bad rap because reflective pieces can be, I think, without any evidence, right? But when you've asked people to say, you know, look at where you were. So not comparing yourself to others, but look at where you were as a writer at the beginning of the class and looking at uh, yourself as a writer at the end of the class. So how have you improved and what do you need to work on? And then also getting them to think about how those skills um, may be applicable, the, the skills, not the content, right? We lots of people with different arts degrees uh, you know, end up in similar businesses. So the skills, not the content, how that would be valuable, uh, in the, in the job market. So there's a couple of things, uh, I wanted to highlight or that, that struck me. And I'm curious what you think about this, Chris, I, I listened to a presentation or I think it was a lecture given by Jordan Peterson. I know that, uh, he elicits, uh, anger from some people, but I, I don't care. I'm going to bring him up anyways, because I think he made a really good point, which is that if you are a good speaker and a good writer, you are absolutely deadly in this world. You are far more likely to be successful with those two things. I think speaking even comes first from the research that I've read, but speaking and then good writing skills go a long way to success just in any kind of job, you, you apply to be, you know, a salesperson, uh, you know, you're not working in your field and then suddenly you're, you know, a good speaker, you're a good salesperson, you're writing reports, you know, those are skills that filter down into all sorts of areas of life. He also talked once, and I, this is one of those things where someone says something and it kind of strikes you right between the eyes. You can't unknow it, which is that sometimes in academia, 
not always, but sometimes you get this kind of casual contempt for the other. And that's kind of goes both ways. So I've noticed that there's sometimes a hesitancy for people to even want to say marketable skills in a university setting as if somehow that cheapens what they're teaching. Like what they're teaching is up here and then, well, yeah, it technically applies to the job force, but you know, that's, that's kind of like a blasphemy. It's like translating the Bible from uh, Latin to English or something like that. You're not supposed to do it. You're not supposed to talk about it. And at the other end, there's sometimes a key said that there's sometimes a casual contempt among private sector people for those who work in education, which is also bad because they have no idea how difficult it is to create a curriculum and teach a course and pass on those skills and have people reflect. So he, he talks about, Peterson talks about how that may be a reason why we don't uh, discuss marketable skills and the reason we're teaching the skills we're teaching in the classroom. Cause I don't think that connection is clear for students. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, in terms of your comment about uh, Peterson uh, and uh, you know, the ability for somebody to go and speak and communicate whether uh, in writing form, I mean, absolutely. That's a, a big skill. It's one of those soft skills that, uh, uh, everybody needs to have and if you don't if you're not able to communicate you could have the most brilliant idea and if you're not able to communicate and get that message across uh, you're not going to succeed and i've seen this time and time again uh, coming across some of the most brilliant researchers academics uh, clinicians and you know sometimes they have some awesome idea and they just cannot distill it to the simplest form so that anybody can comprehend it I think a lot of it also, this is where we kind of underestimate even the power of storytelling. And I mean, we've talked about this before, but I mean, you look at some of the, the most prolific people, uh, especially in business and in this world, like a guy like Steve Jobs, the way that he was able to communicate these new mm -hmm. products and launch them. And I mean, now, uh, if you've seen the valuation of Apple, I mean, it's it's basically bigger than most uh, of the unicorns I think I saw. So all the billion dollar startups, uh, and that's even including some of these like bigger companies that are pretty uh, uh, well established now. And so again, some of these, and in fact, I, I bet you Apple is uh, probably stronger and more powerful than many countries in the world, right? And probably. I'll, yeah. yeah. Well, you sent me a really interesting article a while back. This isn't on our list to talk about today, but I think it, well, no, it was a, it was a series of tweets talking about the value of sales. And, and you know, I think that, uh, I believe, I don't know if it was an article or a you'll have to remind me, but I believe the person, I mean, we'll put this, maybe I'll put this in the show notes because I, I don't want to not back it up with a source. We'll find it later. But I believe the author made the case that if you look at business schools, which are traditionally very good, by the way, at connecting um, theory to practice in the workforce because business, that's what they do, right? But I think the author made the case that you'll find very few business programs that has a have a specialty on sales. And people kind of look down at sales. They think of like, and I, I really don't mean this to disparage any profession. I really don't. I, uh, someone who's good at their job in anything and who's honest and has integrity, I have great respect for, but like the, the terrible to deal with used car salesman, I don't 
mean to disparage people who sell used cars or really good at their job. I want to make that clear, but that's a typical cliche. Uh, and so when you say sales, that comes to people's mind, but he's like, that's, you know, someone who's a really good salesman, who's not lying about the product. That's a, that's a snake oil salesman. That's different. They translate a great idea into value by saying, here's a story about how our product can solve your problem. And those people are really good to pair with maybe brilliant engineers who have great ideas, who don't, who may be good speakers in their own right, but are still not, um, expert salespeople and salespeople are really what, uh, allow the world to go around. If you think about it, I mean, I have so many subscriptions and products. Like I, I have LastPass as my password manager, family version of LastPass. Well, I learned about it because I, it was advertised on a podcast where the person made a very short three minute pitch about how it's useful, why it's secure, why you should have a password manager. This is like almost 10 years ago and I've been subscribing. And so that's a great example of you have constraints, you know, commercial breaks are only so long for a reason. And, uh, then you purchase a product and that it's kind of interesting to me that that's such a strong example of where speaking and writing play uh, an important role in the workforce. Yet we kind of, we don't talk about it in university. We kind of almost look down on it. Yeah. And uh, I do recall, like I, I forwarded, I believe it was a social media post on Twitter. So it was a tweet uh, where they talked about how business programs don't have sales courses or, you know, that skill taught. And uh, you're right, like a lot of people think down upon it. But really, as you say, it is uh, what gets the world to go around. If you can't sell something, then, you know, that uh, product or service is dead in the water. Right? You need the revenues to keep things moving along. And, um, you know, it's uh, I've, I've actually taught sales before, uh, both Mount Royal and at uh, the University of Calgary. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's a process just like anything else. Um, if anybody ever wants to probably the the most uh well cited book on this is uh dale carnegie's how to win friends and influence people and mm -hmm. really at the end of it a lot of it comes down to listening right i mean uh, one of my good clients he always says that uh, you know god gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason and uh, you're supposed to listen as uh, twice as much as you talk and really it's uh, how you mentioned like understanding the the customer's needs finding a solution that'll solve their problems right and uh, that's what it's all about and that's why sales if you think about it especially from a compensation uh, many of them might be performance based or commission based uh, it's a critical uh, piece in society right and uh, getting back to this article one thing that uh, maybe just to kind of clarify so what this article mentioned is that faculty themselves should maybe get some sort of certification in career development mm -hmm. so that uh, they're aware of the trends. And, you know, recently I've actually, I mean, I've done this before as a part of preparing students for internships and, and so on. And I did teach a course this uh, past winter on this as well. But I think people would be surprised how things have changed so much. I mean, it's, it's funny. I've had students recently reach out even, um, uh, from the master's program and they can't find jobs and they're wondering what are they doing wrong they're sending out all these applications and and so on and i again i i don't think that skill was uh, uh maybe instilled i'm not sure what the rest of the course offerings were but you know it, the fact is there's thousands of people applying these days 
there's not a human being that's actually going and sifting through all those cover letters and resumes. And so what it is, it's an algorithm. And in fact, I'll, I'll tell you years ago, I don't know how if um, the systems ha are, have been updated, but I recall one of my former students, literally, he took the entire job like posting, pasted it into his resume, made it like one point font or whatever, the smallest font, changed it to the background color, which was white. And he scored off the charts when it came to uh, the actual um, HR platform that was uh, used. And then in the interview, like the, the HR people, they have never came across anybody who scored that high. And so the, <laughs> they asked him at the end, hey, what, what did you do? And that's what, uh, what they told him. So maybe, and if you recall back in the day, that's what we would do for search engine optimization, right? You would take- Can't do that anymore keywords. though. Yeah, now you get penalized by Google uh, if you do st stuff like that. But that's how people got around it back in the day. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if HR systems have now now gotten better algorithms for that but a lot of it has to do with key words um, uh, you know key um, uh, things that they're looking for and you have to customize it you can't just go and fire off the same resume and cover letter for every job you've got to customize it to uh, that um, particular uh, posting and um, again that's I think the other big thing that I, uh, people don't realize many of the jobs that you really want uh, may never even be posted in the first place. Right. right Unless you're mouth. working in academia and then it's like a has to be that process. <laughs> <laughs> you're right about customization though. I mean, I was customizing letters, but it also takes a long time to get good at it too. And I think that's another thing we talks about embedding in curriculum. Um, you know, I mean, I, I've, students ask me this all the time. Oh, how'd you get an academic position? You know, you're so lucky. And I was like, well, luck is a combination of uh persistence and being prepared really yeah. uh so you know i did get a really good job in the end but it took 75 applications and 10 15 interviews yeah. a lot of people yeah. don't get that far because they give up they give up after 10 oh i didn't no one got back to me it's like you know what i just treated it like an hour a day i'd send off a posting i'd write a custom letter and the better I got at writing custom letters, which I only got through practice, then I heard back more, but then, you know, you're doing interviews and then you had to do a few interviews before you were the final candidate. And then you didn't get that. So you really have to work through every stage of the, whatever the, how many circles in hell they say, I'm just joking. That's not how it is, but it's, it's like that. You have to get good at each step. And if you haven't ever done that in school, you're going to be starting in the kindergarten equivalent. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, think about it, you're, you got to develop a thick skin, like, you know, to get rejected that many times. Right. Yeah, uh, it's hard, disheartening. But yeah, I mean, look at then, you know, if you look at some of the biggest success stories, like the, the person who uh, was the founder of Starbucks or Dyson got rejected thousands of times. You know, oh, yeah. and, uh, and they still persevered and it's the same kind of thing. But I think part of it, again, the, you know, uh, this is where uh, people you're you're probably right. They give up and then beyond that, they don't adapt and figure out like why. Didn't, I mean, here's a simple thing. Ask for feedback. You know, let's say if you actually did get interviewed, ask why you didn't get the job and what you could have done to improve. Right. Or do informational interviews or other things. There's so many different tactics. And more often than not, I have found that when you ask for feedback like that, I tell students this all the time, just like when you ask someone 
uh, I said in a previous episode, if you email an academic and be like, Hey, do you have, I read your paper. I thought it was really interesting. Do you have more information on X? Well, they're so flattered that you reached out. Nobody emails them. Everyone thinks they do, but they don't. Same things with when you interview people. I, I interviewed at a, a couple of schools in, in BC a long time ago. I did really well. They, they didn't have anything bad to say. But the person they hired was the right person. So much more experience than I had. Uh, all of the technical skills, no training or learning required. Well, of course they got the job, right? Uh, I didn't feel bad about it, though, because I was interviewing. I was this close to getting the position up against someone who had way more years of experience on me, but they liked the way I presented it and communicated it better. So not good enough to overcome just this knowledge they had, but enough to get this close to getting the position. And I said, well, could you give me some feedback? And they walked me through why they hired the person and, you know, where I should continue to do professional development. They were like, oh, you know, we'd recommend that you continue on in IT and, you know, do development, uh, uh, just do those projects and work with associations. So I've always continued to do that. Um, I mean, I still had my job, so it didn't matter, but yeah, it's amazing if you ask people, but sometimes they won't get back to you, but that's fine. The worst they'll say is no, or they don't get back to you. And then you just move on, right? You didn't lose anything. Yeah, for sure. You want to move into number four? Yeah. So he said we'd organize many more courses around hot topics. So instead of relegating essential topics involving gender, sexuality, racism, and other forms of bias and discrimination into training workshops, they develop a, you know, four credit classes designed to attract a broad uh, array of students that explicitly address these things. So I, th- I think that we do a little bit more of that than perhaps, though this is, uh, I think, uh, maybe American-centric, so perhaps it's not as common in Texas. Yeah. But no. probably. I mean, hot topics of anything, right? Um, you know, political science. I mean, that, that's one thing I remember from going to UBC. There was a, I seem to remember at, at that time, I haven't looked at their curriculum lately, but I seem to have more options for topics in blank where there was course curriculum set aside for what was happening in that particular discipline. And it could be anything. So, yeah, no, I agree. And, um, I think that's one thing that, uh, maybe the Canadian system, we are very, uh, adaptable and, and mm-hmm. out, I think it's in all disciplines. I mean, I, I look at even in business, for example, at, uh, UFC, there was a course that was created, uh, just for cannabis with the, you know, the big, uh, development on that. So, you know, again, they look at what opportunities and test them out. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, exactly. we'll, move, we'll move into number five. So, uh, the author, uh, wants to encourage arts appreciation through new kinds of learning experiences. And, mm-hmm. um, and again, I, I think this is where like art is kind of, uh, underrepresented. I'd, um, and uh, in a lot of ways, people, um, even funding wise, it's, uh, it's usually doesn't receive as much, but, uh, if we can kind of instill that, uh, across the, um, the curriculum and all the, the programming and so on and show that kind of appreciation, I think that'll certainly help. Uh, I mean, I, I always consider art as, uh, probably the most sophisticated tool that we have to reflect on our society. And, um, you know, again, I, I think lots of people just uh, sort of look at it more as a artsy fartsy kind of, uh, you know, nice to have, <laughs> but nothing critical. But really, a lot of the cities that have a huge investment in that, uh, they're doing tremendously well uh, compared to their counterparts. 
And then I'll, I want to come back to that before we uh, leave this article. Um, but I'll, I'll just mention the last um, section, which is um, we'd increase access to physical activity of all kinds. Um, so he says that campuses can incentivize physical activity, not just through rec center or campus swimming pools or intramural athletics, uh, but by authoring certificates or credit for participation and in, in a bunch of things. So the non-elite uh, physical exercise. And he talks about Eric Erickson, no relation. <laughs> Interesting that you'd have a first name and a last name that's almost the same. But anyways, Eric Erickson is quite famous. I talked about, and he researched the stages of uh, psychosocial development. Um, and he prompted, as the author says, prompted many of us to recognize that human growth extends across the life of a course and to understand that far from being a linear process, human development is beset by tensions, conflicts, contradictions, and reversals. Um, but talks about, um, just more variety, um, as part of that developmental cycle. And I think, I think physical activity is one of them. Um, in that last one that you mentioned, Chris, I wanted to come, I don't have too much to say about the last point in this article, but you talked about, um, the arts appreciation. There's a book that I, um, want to talk about, I believe it's called, uh, shop class as soul craft. I believe that's the title. Yeah. And it's written by Matthew Crawford. Have you heard of that book? No, I haven't. So, uh, Matthew Crawford, I believe is a fellow, like a neuropsychologist, he's an academic in California. And he got really disillusioned with academia. He got really tired of, I think he got a job in a think tank where it was kind of a write reports that nobody reads kind of a job. And he, it like Cal Newport, this idea of knowledge work being dissatisfying. And one of the things that he did is that he said, ah, screw it. I'm going to go repair motorcycles. Cause that's what he wanted to do. Um, and this last point of this inside higher ed article kind of reminds me of that, that there are, I would say arts appreciation, you know, and he's talking about like fine arts, dance, that kind of thing in this article, but you could expand arts to craftsmanship, I think. And in terms of satisfaction. So one of the things that I, uh, I think is really satisfying for people is that when they, uh, have something that they do that's physical or that uses their hands. Uh, and that kind of ties in also with the physical, uh, more physical activity in university. I think if you're physically active, well, you're going to have more endorphins in your body and you're going to be more engaged and in a better mood most likely. But also if you're doing an art or you're doing a craft or you're engaging in something like that, um, you start to develop as, as, uh, Crawford says, kind of an appreciation for things that may come across as, uh, you know, mundane and boring until you've done them. And so he, in the book, I've only read sections of it, but he talks, he'll talk about something he was doing in his knowledge work job. That was kind of a bullshit task that he was told to do like a make work. And then he's like, this is really irritating and it has no value. And then contrast that say with how I was able to restore this 
aspect of the carburetor on a motorcycle, how hard it was, how I figured out how to get these rusted bolts off and what I had to use to dissolve what was making them stick and stuff. He's like that. You would think, oh, I just take my car into the shop. Some grease monkey fixes it. It actually requires a huge amount of physical effort and creativity to sometimes think around these mechanical problems. And I think that's also an art, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And it kind of reminds me that, yeah, there's a lot of things that we don't, that we don't value. We put you know, these academic white collar jobs and the skills that university gives you up here and they're valuable, but there's this craftsmanship side of things, um, that, that we could perhaps bring out by encouraging both the arts and physical activity. That's kind of how I summarized or thought of those last two points. Yeah, no, I mean, that's an interesting point that you bring up. And I, I would even take it one step further where you maybe bring together a lot of these disciplines and you talk about like the physical, the artistic, even the technological. I mean, uh, think about with uh, the advent of Raspberry Pi or Arduinos mm-hmm. and, and so on. Now you could actually work with something physically, develop a prototype with the um, popping up of these maker spaces within universities. Uh, even just coming up with a concept, 3D printing it. I mean, uh, I'm sure there's a great deal of satisfaction that you get by, you know, uh, having like an actual tangible object that you uh, have now brought into life. Yeah. And I don't even think it necessarily has to be related to the curriculum. I think people need something else to do that's not just writing papers and doing knowledge work, right? If it's related to the curriculum, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But even if it's not, um, I mean, I don't do IT shop stuff anymore, but I did for a long time, right? So I, I deal with IT at a higher level, higher level. I don't mean superior, but I mean, I'm, I'm decisions and working with people. I'm not in the computers fixing the motherboards, but I have a great deal of appreciation for the people who do do that because I did that. And, and it also really helps if you're doing pro- planning or sales, or you can speak to, um, the other people you work with, you can plan out things better. If you do, if you get into project management, knowing the steps that other workers have to take to complete a task is really valuable. Otherwise it, your projects will never be on time. And uh, I think there's a whole bunch of downstream effects to that, but I, I could rant and rant and rant. Well, no, I mean, it's a, even just from an education standpoint and as an educator, I mean, it's very simple things that you could do. I mean, now, especially as we come out of this pandemic, but let's say, for example, in my entrepreneurship courses or in my creativity courses, I actually encourage students to get out, go out and, you know, change your environment, uh, maybe interview some people, observe what's going on. Uh, I mean, it, we were confined for the last 15, 16 months or what have you. Right. But, uh, uh I find those are some of the best interactions and uh, where you start just uh, zoom out a bit and take a look at what's going on around you. Right. And, uh, and again, that's where I, I, and I, I do agree. I think there's even the most simplest task, like it could be like pulling out your weeds or, you know, mowing your lawn or whatever. There is some satisfaction that you get once uh, that, uh, you know, end product is done. Right. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure, especially you now buying your own home and stuff, you're probably finding a lot (laughs) of those like mundane tasks, (laughs) gratifying afterwards. I've always really enjoyed fixing things. Um, I'm always in awe of people who are very, very handy. I'm certainly not 
at the level that I put those people. And my dad is like that. He's very, very handy. He has a really good mechanical mind. He's good at building things. But even here, you know, I've replaced boards and the fence already, and uh, a couple of them. Uh, you know, you have to cut them properly and, uh, you know, measure them out, make sure they fit. And that's a simple thing or staining or, you know, I buy a weed eater and I bought an edger attachment with it. So a nice vertical line goes along the lawn and figured out how to use it. Had to do the research of, well, which voltage is best if you buy cordless and are they interchangeable and how much power, how long does it run for? And, um, making sure all the hoses around the house have, uh, you know, washers and proper stuff on them. Otherwise someone will go to use the spray or nozzle. Why is it leaking all over the place? Like there's a lot of satisfaction and, and I used to do, I mean, I've always been a big cleaner. I kind of clean when I'm thinking and I can think about something and also be productive. Same with cooking, but there's something about being outside, but I mean, perhaps that's a discussion. I, I'm curious if we could find someone, if there's someone out there who does uh, research on, uh, uh, the relationship between that, you know, craftsmanship and, and knowledge work or creativity, perhaps that's, that would be a good interview in the future. I'm, I certainly don't feel like I'm an expert other than what I've read. Yeah. Well, now might be a good time to move on to our next article, which is uh, eight reasons this coming year could be the hardest yet for higher ed. And uh, I mean, this is again, another Forbes article, but um, really timely, especially as we now our most uh, academic institutions are uh, looking to head back into the classroom. So did you uh, want to take us through these? Sure. Uh, maybe we'll start off with uh, the first one. Um, there is a, a pent up demand for the return in, to normal, but in many ways it could actually be quite unhealthy. And especially, I think this is where we've been kind of restricted a lot in the, these last like 18 months or what have you. Um, but imagine those who are going into higher education, uh, there could be a big surge of, uh, you know, people going and binge drinking alcohol related assaults and so on, maybe even uh, substantial mental health issues, which we've mm -hmm. already seen growing over the, the last year with the pandemic. And now it might actually be further exacerbated, right? So, so are universities prepared, uh, to deal with potential, uh, increase in more, a volatile behavior, perhaps. Um, the second piece is many students, faculty, and administrators are running on fumes from the past year, exhausted and frustrated. Well, I, I don't really know what else to say about that. Um, uh, between the pandemic and uh, some of the protests that we've had around, uh, you know, racial injustice and. I would say just increased political polarization and uh, some of the research from Pew Research shows there's bitter divides between people that are, I wouldn't say unprecedented, but higher than normal. Uh, Jonathan Haidt talks about this uh, and the coddling of the American mind, just the polarization of people. Is that going to be a, a collision when we come back on campus? I suppose that's not really a technology thing, but it's uh, something to consider. Yeah. 
Well, and I mean, again, we, we don't know what the, the toll, and it, it's not just on faculty, but uh, even the students, the administrators, everybody, mm -hmm. right? Like it's, uh, it's definitely, um, especially we've talked about this at length over the last year or so, uh, you know, people were not prepared into, for this, right? Uh, whether you're on the student side or the, uh, you know, the educator side. So uh, I totally agree with that where we're just running on fumes and uh, who knows people might even be at the at the brink um, going into the next uh, one uh, number three which is the expectations are sky high and <laughs> I think this I kind of laughed when I saw this and I I, I agree because it's it's almost um, uh, probably a good analogy to me would be like uh, you know how people really want to go back and start traveling Right. And they think that business travel or even just getting on an airplane was so fantastic and or even conferences. But really, the experience was mediocre. And we just have this kind of uh, image, mental image in our head. And I, I don't know, I think that college experience to have everybody back on campus and that experience, uh, it really is um, uh, maybe uh something that we have idealized that it's better it's going to be more uh, fruitful but who knows there there could be some disappointment and um, even it talks about like a sense of entitlement for making up for that lost uh, opportunity and which might lead to further disappointment yeah um and i think there's probably uh really high expectations for folks uh, who haven't been on a university campus before and have spent their first year of university and kind of it's un really unfortunate have missed out on the experience of um uh you know meeting people making friends on campus and now they're coming back for their second year and is it a return to normal is it like a partial return to normal I th it's kind of tied with that first one where people are have are pent up there's a huge amount of demand, but also a huge amount of expectation, I think, go hand in hand. So I don't really know what to say about it other than we'll see. Uh, I would say that it's tough for universities to replicate uh, the experience from before. So we'll, we'll see what that looks like. Um, Number four is that students uh, demand both in-person and online. This is kind of the tech angle of it. So it says uh, surveys of college students reveal that although they, ha they largely desire to return to in-person learning, which I think is typical, I think face-to-face -face is generally more popular, the majority want to hold on to the best of both worlds with so 79%, I think this is US-centric, saying that they want all their lectures video recorded and nearly half preferring to have the option to take classes online. And of course, we've talked about this hybrid learning. Uh, it depends how you define it. Some people are defining it as people are in the classroom face to face while also live streaming to the people who didn't feel like getting to class that day. Uh, which sounds like a nightmare, personally, a, a technical and logistical nightmare. Well, and uh, I, I found it interesting, like this, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, half of them were actually wanting the option to take the classes online completely. And, um, you know, again, I guess the unfortunate part is that, unfortunately, the, the way that our registration system and, uh, you know, the registrar itself is set up, we don't have that flexibility. So it's either going to be, most of them are probably going to be in 
uh, in person, right? And uh, even in terms of if you ever have looked, and uh, for those students uh, that have started thinking about building their schedule or what have you, uh, university systems, the calendar does not change very much. It's pretty much that same time and uh, you know day, that's when the courses are gonna be offered and they don't really change much year to year, so you have a pretty good idea. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't blame, I, I think even just from, from the student perspective, like to have that ability to have those lectures recorded and having access to that content. I mean, we've talked about this before, but even the fact is some, some people, and especially imagine, you know, you, you might've uh, uh, glossed over the, the information and not fully grasped it in class but having that ability to go and revisit that content or that lecture. And, you know, uh, sometimes it'll just maybe get further reinforced. So, you know, again, I, it's a, I would highly advocate if there is an ability to go and integrate uh, some uh, components, like the best of both worlds. But uh, realistically, from a logistical standpoint, it's going to be either in person or online, and chances are mostly in person because of uh, just uh, the demand for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I don't have that much to add. I think that's absolutely spot on. Yeah. Uh, we'll um, go into number five with uh, the uh, with most workplaces, as people have maybe seen, but uh, colleges and universities are going to go and struggle as well with uh, their staff and faculty wanting to work from home. And uh, it's interesting, even today, I just got an email from one of the, the places that I teach, and they were talking about how some people will have the option of being able to work from home. And uh, again, I, you know, this is something that uh, in a lot of ways, we've, uh, the pandemic, there are some positives where we've accelerated the adoption of technology and shifted processes. Like, you know, it's funny, uh, just a very simple thing, uh, every semester to go and get my contract signed at uh, Mount Royal, I would actually have to go in person. I could not go and scan it and send it uh, electronically. Um, U of C was different. They would allow you to do it electronically. But uh, again, now, we didn't have any other option other than doing it electronically the, this last year. And so I doubt that they're going to go back to, you know, paper signing, who knows? Yeah. I mean, paper signing and, and automation is one thing. I know the real estate industry is one of the few that's historically slow to move that has had to do that electronic signing for purchase contracts and stuff. I would hope that universities do that. The work from home thing is interesting especially for administrators and, and university staff. Um, though I would say for meetings, well, it depends on, it highly depends, especially if you're, I, I was support staff for quite a number of years at a university. So uh, it's a different role than being a faculty member. And, and sometimes your job is extremely important and your job is to be there if someone needs you. And then when you are there, it's absolutely life-saving. So it, I mean, especially if you work in IT. So that one's, that one's trickier. I would hope that there's a little bit more flexibility I think about IT because that's what I know. People who do desk side support, uh, if they could work from home, you know, faculty are already given enormous amount of flexibility uh, other than teaching face-to-face, -face, like how they hold office hours and how they do that stuff. So I, I think it's probably more on the other employee's side at the university. That's my guess. Um, I mean... It depends on the institution. I mean, I historically been given, I'm very grateful to be given an enormous amount of flexibility. So, but I hope we allow for more, especially if, you know, there's a 
case on campus or something like that. Um, number six, it says uh, many colleges are on thin ice financially. So higher education has been struggling for a while when it comes to financial health. Uh, levels of state, again, U.S.-centric, levels of state funding still have not returned to pre-2008 levels. And then, of course, we've had this um, this pandemic and also just a huge number of um, kind of mid- to low-tier institutions in the United States go bust or close their doors, including some older institutions. So there's this high demand, high expectation um, you know, hybrid learning, which requires in IT infrastructure, but then there's also this uh, fiscal reality. Yeah. Then number seven, uh, the progress against old issues hasn't outpaced growing awareness of them. So they talk about like equity access issues, uh, mm -hmm. doubts about uh, work readiness of graduates, rising cost of tuition uh, and debt. Um, these were all issues before the pandemic, but now, uh, you know, they've obviously been further amplified and the visibility and awareness of these issues is a all time high. And so um, who knows what will happen in terms of uh, uh, their reaction to these. The debt is a big one, because uh, if you demand a high price for your product, I hate to put it in that phrase again. Uh, people in higher ed don't like to think of it as a product that they're selling, but let's put it in that context. If you demand a high price for it, you want a return on investment, right? So as debt goes up, expectations also increase. So you become a customer as part of an experience where it was low cost to entry. You could get away with, no, you're here to learn. So there's serious trade-offs to making it more expensive. It, it, uh, it incurs a, um, a higher uh, expectation or it leads to a higher expectation among your customer, so to speak. Well, and in the U.S., the tuition is way higher. I mean, I, I just saw uh, uh, Professor Scott Galloway from NYU again. Um, he was mm -hmm. talking about uh, how his class, and he's developed an ed tech uh, startup of his own, but he basically is providing the same kind of content, uh, further uh, uh, accelerated online um, but at a fraction of the cost. So his MBA students are paying $9,000 a class, right? Yikes. To attend. <laughs> so, I mean, and he goes, uh, I think he said it to the, the only place that he's seen such margins in academia or like that are equivalent to academia were for some gene altering therapeutic drug that, or uh, CRISPR or something. Yeah, something. <laughs> so was, I mean, he always goes and exaggerates things anyways, but um, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the only thing that, uh, uh, you know, keeps pace with the, the type of margins that, especially in the U.S., where tuitions are way higher than in Canada. Oh, it, it's crazy high, super high. Um, and number eight is more decision options will create less satisfaction not more. This is a kind of counterintuitive one. It says last year, the leaders of colleges and universities had far fewer decision options than they do now when federal and state guidelines required shutting down specific or just shutting down during specific points in time during the pandemic, there wasn't much of a choice, but now that they're opening up, you know, you're going to have masks, you're going to require vaccinations, you're going to have distancing, how you're going to do that in the classroom, all the logistics that come along with opening, which of course has a cost tied to it. Yeah. Well, and uh, imagine if one, uh, let's say, I mean, here I'm teaching at both U of C and Mount Royal, and we just got a, 
some information uh, today from Mount Royal that vaccinations are strongly encouraged, but it's not required. And imagine if UFC has some other policy, you might wonder, okay, well, well, why is that institution have something different? Well, yeah, I mean, in the States, it makes a bit more sense if they're different, because especially if they're privately funded right here, they're publicly. So is there a universal? We will see. Maybe that'll drive tuition or uh, uh, applications to UFC. I have no idea. <laughs> it may be. A, we'll find out. Yeah. Well, and I don't know. I mean, I just saw this email come in right now. So but anyways, uh, I think that's all the news that we have for today. So more, more or less, we do have a couple of discussion items, which are news, um, related, I guess, yeah. uh, last time you and I talked about, uh, windows 11, yeah. uh, you know what it means, you know, people are going to see these on computers. So it's for people who are listening. I mean, this isn't a strictly a tech show. We try to take technology news that's either directly about higher education or, look at technologies that are coming out uh, and uh, and describe how they might impact education. That's kind of what we try to do. So there's, we're coming at this from two different angles. And we talked about Windows 11 last time, some of the changes that have been brought in, what to look about, you know, how is it going to be more productive? Um, but some news came out that I uh, failed to include. So I thought we would, we would return back to Microsoft briefly, which is Windows announcement um, uh, windows 365 and cloud PC, you know, windows branding for their services is really bad. I don't know why they can't figure this out. They have office 365, 365 seems to be like a consistent line in their product. I don't know why it's not Microsoft 365. And that includes windows 365 office 360. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, that's not packaged in a way where I could repeat to somebody what the product tiers are, but that aside, Windows 365 and PC Cloud, which are the same but different, I suppose. Uh, this starts August 2nd. It's basically virtualized Windows. So there's an article uh, that was written uh, July 14th uh, for ZDNet. This is Mary Jo Foley. She's been covering Microsoft for a long time. She has a blog called All About Microsoft. And um, she says that Microsoft officially uh, took the wraps off its newest virtualization services on July 14th, the debut of Windows 365 and Cloud PC. This new service built on top of their Azure Virtual Desktop, which is how they do virtual desktops, will allow users to bring their Windows 10 or, once it's available later this fall, Windows 11 desktop apps, tools, data, and settings to their personal work devices. Uh, including Macs, PCs, iPads, Linux, and Android via a native remote desktop web application. So essentially, uh, you could access a Windows operating system with all the apps you expect, all your data settings enabled uh, via any device. So Windows becomes essentially a, a cloud or web service. And I think the reason this is interesting is that uh, universities uh, have huge IT infrastructures. And so uh, often, uh, for those who aren't working in ed tech, uh, they usually have an agreement with a company. So uh, Dell is a common one. It could be Lenovo, where uh, computers are, are you know recycled or evergreened on a you know, all revolving basis, three years, five years. 
and they poured over all your settings. So you're, you're managing, and I worked in IT management, a huge number of computers and all the logistics to keep everything updated. And, um, you have to have images, uh, that have all the, uh, predetermined settings for your employees, depending on their use case. And then you might have different settings and different setups, depending on different, um, classes of, uh, you know, employment categories or positions. Um, this kind of takes out some of that by not having to have physical hardware or as much physical hardware, or just by allowing, um, the convenience of accessing everything. So if you have a desktop at work, and you need to work from home, they could give you an, you know, uh, a windows computer, which is what normally would be required. Or you could, uh, you know, you could opt to have any device and then access that, that same, that same setup that you're used to. And I think you can also, you know, institutions can pay for how fast they want these to be. So there's literally computers in the cloud and you can determine, you know, how many cores of CPUs do you need a computer with graphics cards for video, you know, editing and development or programming and things like that. So there'll be all these tiers based on how fast you want the computer to be. But it's interesting that it's becoming a cloud service. Well, it's funny because, I mean, uh, we saw this right uh, after we recorded this message or our Windows uh, episode there, the last one. And uh, I mean, I, I think this is a, a bit of a, a game changer if you think about it, especially as you mentioned, Eric. Uh, I mean, now instead of, let's say, us going and renewing our contract with Dell, maybe we keep the same computers, right? Pay it out or what have you, and then you get onto this cloud service. Uh, it's interesting because they were really we're going back to back, you know, uh, all, almost like back into the, the 70s where everything was running through mainframes. And so now our computers are just becoming terminals and we're and it, a lot of it is probably the advancement in the computing uh, processing, the cloud infrastructure that's there, the uh, increase in the Internet bandwidth. Uh, so that's completely changed things because we went from the mainframe bringing it to the personal computer. So now you would have a smaller device and whether it's in your home or your office. And now we're going back where the cloud is essentially like a mainframe, right? You have these server farms or what have you, but then you don't have to take on those costs of, uh, you know, keeping everything maintained, the hardware that's, uh, and in fact, even for Microsoft, it increases their revenues as opposed to going and having to, uh, you know, share it with Dell or what have you. Or well, it could reduce costs. I mean, I think it'll recoup, 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 reduce costs in some areas. I don't know that it will replace traditional desktop computing because, you know, if you go to a, a I, it's hard for me to imagine that you get a job somewhere and they say, well, we have this cloud infrastructure. You just need to bring your home computer in and then connect to Microsoft. Like they're not going to do that. They're still going to have to give you a device to connect to. Maybe they give you a, you know, a laptop, uh, at work and that's what everybody gets. But then for the times when you need something more powerful, there's that option, or maybe it allows people more flexibility. Like if they said, okay, Eric, you get a choice between, you know, an iMac or some other windows computer, I'd probably choose an iMac and then have windows in the cloud, especially now that you can't run windows on a Mac, like bootcamp, like I can on my Intel based Mac, right? Like, I mean, I can see it giving more flexibility. I don't know that the university would save money on a 
basic per user basis. However, it may be a lot cheaper than say, I, I can, I can see it saving a lot of money to, uh, people who apply for grants. Like if you're an academic and maybe you need to apply for a grant and part of the cost is a really high powered computer for scientific computation. This would be a lot cheaper of a subscription than buying that box, especially if you only need it for a certain amount of time. And I think if they can allow this to be flexible, like let's say I'm working on a research project where, you know, maybe I need to do graphics. Well, it's kind of a waste to buy that when 99% of the time, you know, whatever computer they provide me, I was just given a new computer at work. It's a Dell Latitude laptop. It's excellent, by the way. And the IT department of Mount Rose is phenomenal. So shout out to them. But if I needed for a project access to, you know, a, a CPUs with many cores and, you know, two graphics cards, it's kind of a waste of money to buy that for that one project and then to have to try to sell it. And I think that's the problem universities have. This lease system that they have is working well for these base level computers. But what if you get these exceptions and then they all go at a date and then you have to sell them off or, or maybe somebody doesn't even use it that much. Maybe they, you know, they need a mobile device and uh, the iPad is the best mobile device and they only occasionally need to access windows. And now you can do it on both or something like that. Right. So I think there is a, a flexibility. I, I, it would make me sad. I guess if the, if the hardware got cheap enough to where they could virtualize windows and everything, um, well, then it could what, save them money. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking is maybe you might be able to go and provide cheaper hardware mm -hmm. that you use day to day and put that offset that cost into the cloud for Microsoft, yeah. right? Yeah, I can totally see that. And especially like if it can be rolled into other things that the university subscribes to, like we have Office, if they have 365, if they use Azure for backups and stuff like that, that may be a, a cost, it may be a, a cost savings just to roll that in. It's an interesting idea. I mean, Microsoft is kind of coming at this um, cross-platform for a multi device so by multi-device i mean you know tablet phone laptop desktop from a very different starting point than apple yeah well and i i, I think what's happening if you look at it and even again like galloway talks about this but many companies now to increase their market cap their valuation they're looking for ways where they can uh, have these recurring bundles right uh, yeah subscriptions so now uh, as opposed to you going and buying windows once now you basically get a subscription and i mean i i think you're absolutely right they should simplify it and make it uh, whatever it is microsoft 365 and you get windows you get maybe you even throw an xbox or whatever and you're now connected there for life with uh, with microsoft right and uh, even i i guarantee you and galloway's talked about this before and i uh, i would not be surprised if apple gets into this and takes it one step further where right now they're sharing some of their revenue with the telecoms for like you know their iphones and other things but how about if you actually had a subscription where not only do you get your you know apple tv and your icloud and all that but you get your device sent to you and you get once, the phone you can do that with the phone yeah yeah exactly right. you can pay a monthly phone. cost for the phone yeah it, well, I mean, you can do it right now. Uh, I think it's more so like they're financing it and stuff, right? But imagine if it was actually, you know, just a subscription thing. You return it back. You could do that with your laptops. You could do it with your iPads, everything. 
and you just always I don't keep know. the latest. I don't know what devices that you can do exactly that with the iPhone. You can pay now a monthly and you just get a new one every year. I don't know if you can do that with their other stuff. I think it's still on finance. I could be wrong. Um, but I think at the phone, it's that way. And I don't know how that works. If you have to sign up for a plan with Apple, or do you just pay that for the hardware and then go find your own plan? Cause often a bring your own device is a lot cheaper, a telecom plan than if you go through them and subsidize it. Cause then you have to stick with that phone for whatever the contract period is. Um, we're way off education, but it's a, an interesting concept of kind of leasing devices, I'm perhaps some old school. I like to own things and I keep them until they die typically, but maybe that's, if you're an institution, I think that that's why Microsoft has posed this at enterprises because an individual that wouldn't make sense, but for a, a large institution that has to roll out a fleet, I can totally see it. So interesting. Yeah. So um, should we move into the next discussion item? Oh, yeah. My discussion item your, is that well, what you're referring to? The one that uh, you're, I, I found uh, that you're you've now become famous and you've left us <laughs> for for your other uh, I guess your research uh, wife or what have you. My research wife, Michael McNally. I'm sorry, Michael, if you're listening to this. Uh, so Michael McNally, um, what Chris is referring to is an article uh, that I published with some colleagues in the. Uh, Edmonton Journal, uh, so a newspaper in the city of Edmonton in Alberta. Um, and this was, well, our first author is Chayton uh, Jessel, who is uh, in the Students' Union at the University of Calgary, uh, representing uh, Faculty of Science, I believe, uh, myself, and then uh, Michael McNally. Michael McNally is uh, an associate professor at the School of Library and Information Studies and the Faculty of Education at the University of Alberta. Michael and I uh, do research together. We've published an article. Uh, I think we published our last article in 2019. Um, and, uh, we have another one in the pipeline and we've done uh, many, many presentations together. And what Michael and I have historically researched, uh, we've been doing this since, you know, 2013, 2014 is open educational resources or OER. So, um, we wrote an article for the Edmonton Journal talking a little bit about open education and it's, this is a very Alberta centric story about what's happening in Alberta. So that there was a, a report uh, written by, well, probably a consulting firm, I think, but written for Alberta called Alberta 2030. And it's this uh, 10 year strategy for post-secondary education. Um, and there's a bunch of things, you know, job readiness, some of the things you and I have talked about today, actually, Chris. And one of the things, the bullet points that was put in, thankfully, is a, a point about open educational resources. So for those who are not aware, open educational resources are typically digital uh, resources that are openly licensed, typically developed by educators, uh, and then also are, are licensed in a way that, and, and provided in a way where people can take them with attribution, create their own version of it, create a spinoff, like kind of forking it, kind of like a code, an open source uh, code. Uh, so textbooks, but not just textbooks, uh, you know, site websites, uh, class lesson plans, um, entire courses. That's what we call open courseware. There's all these things that make up open educational resources. It's kind of a broad umbrella. 
And um, that's actually mentioned in this uh, 10-year plan from the Alberta government that's come out, but with very few details on how to accomplish it. So what we proposed is that we said that in Alberta right now, we have a fairly conservative government. Before this, we had uh, the NDP, the New Democratic Party, which in Alberta is kind of like a middle-of-the-road party, uh, pretty centered. And then before that, we had a, a, the previous conservative government. So the previous conservative government, so two governments ago, actually were the ones who created a pilot program for the province of Alberta. They did a they did a, f- a seed funding in 2014, and we created the Alberta OER Initiative. And that was a pilot project designed to promote OER in the province. So the money was used um, to give out uh, uh, to give out as grants to educators who wanted to develop their own open educational resources. And we had a couple of textbooks and some other things. Uh, there was also grants for people to do peer reviews. We paid people to do peer reviews just to kind of get the project uh, going. And it was estimated that the, I think the $2 million invested would save students about five and a half million dollars, uh, in the resources because these resources would supplant, uh, paid resources. Uh, so we wrote an article, um, proposing some steps that the government could take to actually act upon this bullet point in this bigger plan. Uh, and they are as follows. So the first would be to kind of reinstate or resurrect the annual granting program that they used to have, uh, since we already have a website, um, and a variety of very talented people who'd be willing to to volunteer for any Alberta, you know, provincial group uh, across the province. There's a lot of people doing really good work in open education here. So it would be easy to resurrect a program that the party had already started under their previous tenure. Um, also to recruit educators, uh, volunteers uh, who'd be willing to help administer grants and, and work in open education across the province, and also to develop some partnerships. One of the things that we did, I had the, the, the privilege to work on the first Alberta OER project, and in fact, uh, co-wrote the uh, toolkits on op- developing open educational resources with my colleague, Crystal McNutt, who now works at U of A. And um, one of the things that was really interesting is that we signed a memorandum of understanding, or the province signed a memorandum of understanding with British Columbia, which has a BC campus, which is a world-renowned, a world leader for open education. They have a whole catalog of open textbooks that uh, educators can use for their classes, and students don't have to pay for them. Um, so to resurrect some of those partnerships would be really helpful probably both for hosting content and advertising content and things like that. So uh, plans and government reports uh, often have uh, no um, strategy for how they will be accomplished. So uh, we wrote an article outlining uh, what they could do in the next 18 months. And then we also said that a greater 10-year plan might be to you know, have some sort of cross-funding body developed uh, that's kind of broad strokes, or maybe even to work with institutions on how to get um, tenure and promotion, or to get people tenure and promotion points for developing OER resources. That's another barrier. Typically, there's not a lot of incentive to develop those if you can't get a, you can't get any points for it for your job, can't get a promotion and stuff like that. So uh, those are some things we outlined in the article. Um, 
Uh, that's what I have to say about that. I, overall, I, I thought it was really well written, your op-ed. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it's timely. You know, it's something that, uh, again, as you mentioned, we already have the website up. We, this initiative was there. It's just a matter of resurrecting it. And uh, I think there would be a lot of people that would be willing to support it. Um, you know, again, uh, if we had some sort of way of uh, just going and, uh, you know, t having some sort of peer review process, I don't even think it would be a huge amount of money or funding that we would need because uh, the website's already up. It's just a matter of uh, giving some type of incentive. I mean, I chatted with you offline. I, I would actually not even require any kind of compensation if I was going to do OER stuff as long as I got support for having some research assistance to go and, you know, uh, help me with uh, producing some of the materials. And then uh, even that, it could probably be pretty minimal. Maybe you pay somebody mm -hmm. like a thousand bucks, some student, maybe that student even gets some sort of credit for that, right? I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think, it, so people are hesitant, um, and I understand that when you ask the government to provide ongoing funding, that becomes an ongoing cost. And so there's something to consider. We've had considerable budget cuts in Alberta around post-secondary education. So like in the in the realm of hundreds of millions of dollars annually, I, I don't know what it is up now, Chris, but it must be hundreds of millions of dollars they've cut if you look at all the institutions. Um, so a million dollars a year, which seems like a lot of money, would be a small, a very small amount of that savings to reinvest. And like you said, the funding can be used to employ students. Um, a lot of times faculty have written a lot of this content on their own, but there's, there's two barriers. If you're trying to get tenure or trying to get a promotion, um, it, it, it's not always counted. It's, it's difficult to count OER or open education work towards that, especially if, if you work at a research intensive school I, at Mount Royal. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I probably would get more credit because we're more of a teaching focused institution, but it, that money isn't, isn't, um, it would go to good use because it, it historically from states in the U S as well as other provinces that have invested in it, get a lot more back from savings than they invest. It's actually tends to be a really good rate of return. So economically it's a good uh, rate and it can be used to hire a copy editor to make the quality of the materials better. It could be used for peer review. And it, it's fairly easy to set this stuff up. And, you know, a lot of the things with OER, a lot of the struggles that governments have about setting up OER, it's kind of funny because they've already been solved by open access journals. So I'm a technical manager. I uh, have been a technical manager of journals, open journals for a long time. And all of the systems are there for peer review. There's, you know, you um, open journal systems for instance, is what, uh, like a journal, like first Monday, which was the first, one of the first open access journals. I believe it's university of Chicago, Urbana, Urbana champagne that hosts it. I'm not sure, but, um, those systems are free. You just have to host them. If you already have an institutional it department, and then people can submit whatever you want. And then you can have a pool of peer reviewers that you assign things to based on their expertise. I mean, this free open peer review, like I do peer reviews. I do like five 
uh, peer reviews for journal articles a year, I don't get any money from them. Now I counted in my annual report as scholarly service because I'm an academic and that's easy for me to do. It's not easy for everybody to do depending on their contract status. But, um, that peer review work is often considered scholarship. So it's, it's not even about paying people. We tried to pay people originally for peer reviews, but that's a, that becomes a difficult ongoing cost. I think a lot of the money would have to go to, you know, just some basic IT support to get things up and running. And then, you know, opportunities for students and to do writing or get, you know, maybe that you want to hire a student to compile creative commons graphics for a textbook. And you need to find like 150 images from a variety of open databases or, or reach out to people for copyright permissions. I mean, that kind of administrative stuff is really important work, but it's very time consuming. So often people are, have cre still created most of these materials on their own time, but they need a little bit of help to get it over the line to get that quality up. And I think OER haven't taken off sometimes because the quality isn't there. Um, but you know, a, a copy editor can solve that even if you don't have any graphics, right? I mean, it just, it makes a big difference. Well, no, absolutely. And I, I think you make some good points there too. I mean, even just copy editing, uh, maybe graphic design, some of this, mm -hmm. uh, administrative stuff of getting permissions and and so on uh, i mean that would be a huge help and especially i mean it's one thing for uh, i mean i'm speaking as a, a sessional instructor uh, so we're uh and I, I i can't speak for everybody but for myself like i mean i again uh, i practice my craft so it's something that i could easily go and uh, produce some materials and it's just I don't, mm -hmm. I'm not compensated in that way whatsoever. And, uh, I'm happy to do it, but I need some horsepower to go and help, uh, facilitate some of that. Right. Yeah. And I mean, a graphic design overhaul, if someone's written it in Google docs and they want a graphic design, um, you know, they want someone to help, you know, do the formatting in a way that's a little bit more readable, add some images and then get the original files so they can make that available to someone who maybe wants to make a spin-off version of that. That's the whole idea, right? Like, uh, unless you make a new edition of your textbook, there's no need to copyright it again. If someone takes it and forks it and makes a new version, um, then th they'll go ahead and do that or they'll do that work. What, a good example is that when we did the, as part of this is a very meta example, when, when we we're working on the initiative and they said, okay, we want some toolkits because people don't really know, like, what are things you have to consider when you go to develop an OER resource? And I had no idea. So I read articles on uh, best practices uh, for open education, instructional design, universal design for learning and wrote these toolkits. And we just wrote them in Google Docs. We did have a graphic designer go in and make them look nice in Google Docs, but then they were open to everybody and uh, they, people could download them in, into Word or PDF or whatever format. And actually some universities in the States took what we did and then way expanded it. And they're just like, this was originally taken from, you know, Christensen and McNutt's toolkit. So it, I had no idea that some university in Ohio or wherever it was would take this and use it. But that's the kind of the, the magic about building these resources. Once you make them available because of the licensing uh, and you want to make it as liberal licensing as possible, like CC by attribution is best uh, for less restrictions. Uh, you know, it really does pay dividends and there's a lot of, there's already a lot of really good textbooks and it's not always just starting things from scratch. Sometimes somebody says, you know, I, I really need to rewrite some of an existing book and include my own examples from my own research from my course. 
So maybe they're already starting with a completed textbook, but they need to overhaul and move things around and they have this plan, but they need some usually, you know, graphics, copy editing, help formatting. Um, and, and, you know, a little bit of money can go a long way. Yeah, for sure. So that's pretty much all I have to say about that. Perhaps, um, we'll have to have Michael and Chayton on. We can do that as an interview at some point, if they're willing to chat, I think, um, they can, Chayton for sure can bring a, a student perspective and Michael's been working in copyright and open education and stuff for uh, longer than I have. So perhaps we can get them on the show to talk to them. I'm sure we could, but that's kind of a breakdown of the article. It's my own article, so I won't go on and on about it, but uh, I was glad that it was published and that uh, some people read it. I got some emails that people read the newspaper. So that's cool. Yeah. So I um, believe we have one tech tip. We do have one tech tip, uh, something that we've kind of covered before, but we're going to talk about it again. And, and there's an older article that we've kind of had kicking around from fast company published. Uh, it, was, it was June 24th, but it, I think it's, it's really relevant. It says, uh, you've sent this to me, Chris, and it says these alternatives to Gmail, Google docs and drive will protect your privacy. So I'll put this in the show notes, but essentially, um, you know, I use Google, uh, you know, workspace, I think it's called now for work and it works really well, but you know, in your personal life, you may be a little bit more conscious about, you know, what you do for privacy. So this article just outlines some alternatives that you can use. I'd also recommend going to a website called privacy.io, uh, that gives some privacy specific tools and tips. We've, uh, we've recommended that a few times, but I'll continue to do so. And the article talks about alternative browsers, searches that you can use, search engines that you can use, email services that you can use, etc. So for instance, um, you could use Vivaldi or Brave um, or Firefox, I would say, as alternative browsers to Chrome. You could use DuckDuckGo if you wanted more consistent search results that weren't localized that are tied to your account. I think the big one is email. Uh, Vivaldi recently launched its own mail client. Um, I think DuckDuckGo is going to do a desktop uh, web browser as well as it already has its own search engine. If you're looking for a personal email, one that's free but also has a, a paid tier, I'd recommend ProtonMail. Uh, ProtonMail is hosted in Switzerland. It's kind of a super encrypted, privacy-focused uh, email service. That's what I use as my as my private email. Um, I've been very very happy with with Proton Mail, and uh, they have Proton Drive, which comes with the paid tier. I think I you know I think my paid tier for the is sixty bucks a year for a whole bunch of storage and a drive and calendar and a whole bunch of stuff. So it's very very affordable, but there's also free tier as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, it also mentioned that. Brave is going and looking at developing its own search engine. So mm -hmm. good luck to them, I suppose. Um, and that's a tough well, feed for sure. It is tough. And there's a few um, privacy focused search searches also. There's one, uh, I don't remember the name off the top of my head. It's at privacy uh, privacytools.io has a list of them, but it also, it uses the Google engine, but it kind of strips away all the tracking. Uh, so there's a variety of privacy things out there. Um, we talked about privacy before in a previous episode. So uh, there's lots of ways to uh, private alternatives to 
the kind of the, the big name uh, email browser searches, stuff yeah. like that. So keep that in mind. There is a new one that's coming out uh, for a search engine that is paid. It's called Neva. So Neva.com mm. and um, uh, it's in, uh, I think it's just come out of beta right now. So, uh, you know, it might be something to explore. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's pretty much what we had for everyone today. So uh, Chris, do you want to let our listeners know where they can contact you? Yeah, so you can find my personal website is uh, Chris Hans, so K-R-I-S-H-A-N-S dot C-A, and uh, has some uh, of my social media handles and so on uh, if you need to get in contact with me. And I'm Eric Christensen, and you can contact me at ericchristensen.net. All my social media handles are there. You can also find my blog, tech-bytes, that's techbytes, tech-bytes.net, where I uh, blog about tech, but uh, not since December. So we'll be returning to that once I've rebranded and come up with a new plan. That's been my summer project. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Take care, Chris. Yeah, you too. And I'm Chris Hong, the audio producer for EdTech Examined. You can get in touch with me and contact me through all of my social media at my website, which is chrishong.ca. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-O-A-N-G dot C-A. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTech Examined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.